This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy, and I am the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Psalm 8 is an intriguing song of praise to God. It begins and it ends with words that inspired a popular worship song. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Maybe you recognize that. And this psalm was written by the shepherd boy whom God made into a king. By a boy who became the man known as the man after God's own heart a young man that we know by the name of David. You can almost imagine him as a young man, laying there on a hillside. His father's sheep are bedded down for the night, and David looks upon the night sky and begins to be filled with wonder. Abraham Lincoln once wrote, I never behold the heavens filled with stars, that I do not feel I am looking in the face of God. I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. There is something about a clear night filled with a huge moon and bright shining stars that creates a sense of wonder in most people. And this is probably what inspired David to write Psalm 8, 3, and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? A father told of taking his family to the Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado. He said the sky seemed more brilliant than they had ever seen it, And the stars were so close, you felt as though you could touch touch them. Their three boys decided they would put their sleeping bags out on the ground so they could go to sleep watching the stars. The man and his wife had just settled down for the night when their youngest came into the tent dragging his sleeping bag. What is the matter? they had asked him. Is it getting too cold? No, the young boy answered. I just never knew how small. I was. He was scared. And so we can imagine David looking up at the majesty of the night sky and being filled with awe. And suddenly, he feels really small. How could a God who has created all this beauty be concerned with him? How could such a God be mindful of him or care what happens to him? It doesn't make any sense. And David was right. It didn't make any sense. And that's what Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, that's what he thought when he said, If there are any gods whose chief concern is man, they can't be very important gods. He was saying, We're so insignificant that any god worth his name wouldn't give us a second thought. And that sentiment was echoed in a different way 
by one of the leading astronomers and atheists of the past few centuries, Carl Sagan. On his popular science program, Cosmos, he said this, We live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star, lost in a galaxy, tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe, in which there are far more galaxies than people. Sagan painted a portrait of a trivial planet, didn't he? Inside of a dismal solar system located in a backwater galaxy that was dwarfed by bigger, more impressive systems throughout the cosmos. Sagan not only asked why would anyone be impressed with mankind, he asked why would anyone even be impressed with our planet, our sun, or our solar system. Why would Sagan say that? Well, first, he was an atheist. He didn't believe in our God, so he had no reason to believe that our world would have any significance at all. And second, he'd seen and heard a great deal about the universe, and what he'd seen and heard made him scoff at our galaxy having any importance. As an astronomer, he knew that there were billions upon billions of stars, and many of those stars are thousands of times brighter than our sun. And of course, he would know that our sun was called a yellow dwarf star. Do you know why our sun is called a dwarf? It's because it's really small. It is literally dwarfed by the size of other stars in the known universe. The fact that our sun is dwarfed by so many other stars in the universe has caused some scientists to say the sun, our sun, is a rather commonplace celestial object. It is, star, it is a star of ordinary dimensions and of ordinary brightness. These folks look at the heavens and not only see, say that we seem insignificant, they believe we are insignificant. But David did not think like that. David never believed that, because David knew that God had created this world for us. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, he said, You made us, mankind, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. As far as David was concerned, if God made this world for us, including the sun, the moon, and the stars, you can count on the fact that it's not some humdrum planet in a backwater galaxy. Sagan and Clark, and all the other scientists who think that our Earth is trivial, have their telescopes pointed in the wrong direction, because it's in the heavens that God writes his love for us. For example... Astronomers have discovered that the universe has a center, although that is disputed. But guess where that center is? According to Hubble Law, there is a concentratic pattern to the universe that implies our galaxy is very near the center of the cosmos and the expansion. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And of course, there's our humdrum ordinary star we call the sun. 
It's actually not all that ordinary. In 1974, McMath Solar Observatory at Kitt Peak in Colorado began a 32-year study of the stars. By 2006, they had studied a number of stars, including our own, and arrived at the conclusion that of all the stars they've studied, our sun was one of the most stable, whereas most stars give off wild fluctuations and flares and eruptions that would endanger any life anywhere near them. They found that our solar system, our sun, only varied by six one-hundredths of a percent during the entire 32 years they recorded. In other words, any other kind of star would have fried us by now. But the sun, as we've observed all our lives, we have no reason to fear it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Then there's our solar system. Take a close look. or th- uh, When you get home, if you put it up on your phone or on your computer, take a close look at our solar system. When you look, you'll see all of the planets. There's Mercury, the first one closest to the star. Venus, which is about the same size as our planet. Earth, with our moon. Mars, about half our planet's size. Then we have that asteroid belt. After which there is Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and many others. Smaller in significance, not considered planets. Where are all the big planets? They are on the outside of our solar system, further away from the sun than we are. And that alone is peculiar because, excuse me, in the solar systems, astronomers have discovered up to this point, the big planets are much more often closer to the star than ours is. In other words, the larger planets are close, whereas the smaller planets drift further away. So why would God plant these huge planets further away from the sun than we are? The Bible does not tell us, but I think we can have a pretty good guess. Comets. Scientists spend hours upon hours and days and months worrying that some interplanetary comet, asteroid, or meteor is going to careen into our solar system and crash into our planet, destroying all life as we know it. But over the centuries, that type of collision has rarely happened. Why? Well, we begin with the big planets. Any extraterrestrial debris that heads toward our planet would have to get past those four huge planets first. Whether there are meteors or asteroids or any other large rock flying at us, they have to get past them. That's a tall order in and of itself. And then you have the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Any meteors and asteroid would not only have to get past the four huge planets, it would have to penetrate the belt to get to us. Very few do. But if they get past those huge planets... And that's a vast, and that vast asteroid belt, we have our moon. 
And when you look at the moon through a telescope, what do you see? Craters. And they get there because of meteors and asteroids. And if anything gets past those huge planets, the asteroid belt, and past our moon, you see a shooting star. And those stars are really interplanetary rocks that literally burn up entering our atmosphere. And as a result, very few large objects from outer space have ever made it to our Earth. In 2005, five secular planetary scientists met at the American Museum of Natural History and agreed that our solar system appears special. One commented, a Fritz Benedict of the University of Texas said, The older I get, the less likely it seems to me there'd be a bunch of places like our solar system. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And I could go on and on and on about how special our galaxy, our solar system, the sun, and the planet is in the universe. Our galaxy sits close to the very center of the universe. Our sun is one of the most stable stars in the universe. And our solar system is uniquely designed to protect our planet from the ravages of space. But you know, David did not know all that. All David knew was that God cared for him. And he could tell it by the beauty of the skies at night, the warmth of the sun that met him each morning. And because David knew that God loved him, all throughout the Psalms, David said things like this, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. When I said my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. And therefore, David wrote in Psalm 136, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. What David was saying in Psalm 8 was this, at verses 5 through 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Amazing. God created all this just for you and me. And that proves, says David, just how much God really loves us. And so if all that is true, how come we don't feel all that important, all that valuable? 
How come we don't feel like we deserve God's love? The reason we don't feel worthy of God's love is because, well, we don't. Something inside of us gnaws at us because we know we've done things, thought things, said things that would embarrass us so much that we'd want to crawl into some dark corner and pull something over ourselves to hide. And because we know that's true, we know that the verse that says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know it's true. We have fallen short. We have sinned. And we know that there must be a price to be paid for our sins. And we know from Scripture that our sins condemn us and the price for those sins is death. We don't deserve God's love. But God loved us anyway. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He created, God created, all this world for us. But he knew we needed something more. A something that would help us deal with the pain of our own failures. And he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for you and for me. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. On the cross, Jesus proved the truth of the words of Psalm 103, where David wrote, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. On the cross, God did that for us. On the cross, God proved how much he loved us. The past few Sundays, I started a new series I've been preaching on Sunday morning on the seven I am statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at I am the bread of life. And this past Sunday, we looked at I am the light of the world from John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, where Jesus says in verse 12, to speaking to the group, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. 
You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was speaking about light, and light shines upon things, shows the reality. He was coming to bring us truth. As he says later on in the chapter to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, in verse 31, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. To be able to see things as they really are. To understand what was really happening in the world. To know where we really stand before God. Sinners. All have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. Every one of us. There is a creator. And all creation screams at looking into the heavens makes that clear to us. And Jesus came to open our eyes. But no one likes to have ripples in the pool. No one likes to have their sins exposed to have to stand before a father and be judged. And so we crawl into our corner. And we pull the blanket over ourselves and put ourselves back into darkness. Jesus was trying to help the Pharisees see that they were in darkness. And he was the light. But they could not see. Even though they had eyes to see. They could not hear. Even though they had ears to hear. I hope... All you who are listening this afternoon on the radio or perhaps on Telegram and all the different places where you may hear this program, that you may truly redeem the time. Make the most of every opportunity that Christ has put before you. He has given us so much. He has loved us so much. And every moment we have an opportunity to make things right with the Father. That can be difficult because it may require a change in our life and that change may affect our careers, our families, our friends and the comforts that we have in this life. And for a little while we may suffer but eternity is not far away. We are just a vapor, as James says. So we better make the most of our time, for the days are evil. I pray that you read the 8th Psalm, 
that you may think upon these things. Examine your life. Allow the light to shine upon your heart. And repent of those things that you have yet to let go of. And repent means to take take action. To move away from the current walk you're in and back into the light. That shows us who we really are before God. That shows us the reality of life and where we are going. If we are willing to see it, the scripture tells us all we need to know. But we must hear these words and act upon them. We must change our lives. And that is a tall order. Before I close things out for this program, I want to say a thank you to all those who helped out at the Copper Basin Bible Camp up at Prescott, uh, in Prescott, Arizona. We had our summer camps this past month in the month of June, and they were very, very successful. As with many camps that were opening up for the month, we were worried about having few children. We were expecting a lot fewer than we received. 150 campers in our, was that, four or five camps that we had, came, and what a blessing it was. All those who directed the camps, Patrick Sweeney, Ryan Bittacoffer, Alex Bigum, Jim and Andy Williams, uh, Perry Stilts, our caretakers, Kevin Hurl, his wife Sarah, who was in Il May, and their children also helped out. Joe Bridges, also a caretaker. The staff, like Sue Hogett, and all those who helped her in the kitchen in preparing things. Ethan Hunt, who spoke uh, read books for the children and did the nature walks and many other things. There is so much that goes into these camps. And we want to thank everyone who had been part of it and helped out. All the congregations who sent their children and parents who trusted us with their kids. Thank you. And I hope everyone out there listening today will take into consideration to sending their child to the Copper Basin Bible Camp next year. We want to impart the love of God into their hearts. And we always pray to the Father for those opportunities that we may make the most of all that we have and that he has given to us. Thank you, and may the Lord bless you in your walk today. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ.